0: And so it's a great privilege here to bring the word this morning. Uh, Happy Resurrection Sunday. Excited to be with you. It's one of my favorite times of the year, not just because of Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I love the spring. You can't help but look and see as you kind of look out that the grass is a little greener. Not 100% a little greener. I think today is uh, 73 degrees. Um, There's a tournament on, golf, that I enjoy. Usually it coincides with my oldest son's birthday, Uh, He has a Sunday birthday a lot of years, so that's kind of fun. This year it's Wednesday, uh, so it's my firstborn, so it's all those things. But most importantly, of course, as we look towards the spring and you look towards the resurrection, it is that there is new life, which you see all through creation, but you see chiefly in Christ, who not only died but was raised again, defeating death. And that is what our hope is in. And so this morning, although we have been in Revelation and we've been looking at Christ's second coming in judgment... Uh, we're, we're going to look a little bit differently, not necessarily focused specifically on the resurrection. I kind of looked at looking at John 20 for a moment. But in my own study, I've been kind of drawn to this passage in Hebrews chapter 12. So you can turn there with me in your copy of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 12. We'll read just the first four verses and then we'll do a little work getting ourselves oriented. But, It is focused on Christ, his work, and how it should involve us being encouraged and motivating us to endure, to run our race as Christ is faithful and was faithful and is faithful to us. So we'll read together here just the, the short section we're going to focus in on. Of course, we'll, we'll look broader at Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, laying aside every weight and the sin which so entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider Him, who has endured such hostility... ...by sinners against himself... ...so that you will not grow weary... ...fainting in heart... ...you have not yet resisted... ...to the point of shedding blood... ...in your striving against sin. Father, we are thankful... ...for all that you are doing... ...and all that you have done... ...even as we look this morning again... ...to the reason we are gathered... ...the reason that, as Paul says... ...our hope is not in vain... Because Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of which we know when we are united to Him in faith that we will follow as well. That He has taken the sting of death and removed it. And so we are rejoicing this morning, being reminded as other churches around, not only our local communities, but in the world celebrating what Christ has done. And yet we look forward as well at the impact of what you have called us as your church to be. So pray that you would be honored as we are encouraged this morning to reorient ourselves and be reminded of who Christ is, what Christ has done for us, and what it means for each one of us to follow after him. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, the concept of focus is a little lost probably on our culture. Uh, We're a culture of professional multitaskers. Um, I'm just as guilty as the next one, but I found, and I think everyone knows this somewhat intuitively, that at some point, certain things require focus to get really anything done. You're going to have to get rid of all the distractions and kind of bear down, particularly the more intellectual the work is. And if you spend your life, and I spend a lot of it behind a desk, sometimes it's you just can't get it done with being distracted. I appreciated a, a book that came out a number of years ago by Cal Newport, and he had a book titled Deep Work. And his argument was simple not to say a Christian book, just a work, uh, book in general, but that for those who are going to be successful in kind of our informational world, you're going to have to learn how to do deep work. And so he looks back at. People have done the deep work throughout centuries and argues that it's even more important because there are so many distractions today. And he contrasts that deep work with, against what he calls shallow work. Shallow work is simply the work that doesn't take a lot of focus and attention but also doesn't have a lot of depth and a lot of staying and lasting power. The issue is focus. The issue is are we going to let something really shape the way we live. And the only way to do that is to say this is a priority, this is important, and to focus on that. And so this Resurrection Sunday, I want to do that. I want to focus our, us back on the person and work of Christ and look at this passage in Hebrews 12 and see how it calls us, verse 2 very specifically, to fix our eyes on Him, on Jesus So we're going to see that this morning. It's a well-known passage that I think many of you probably have read and heard before. But it comes with a whole background. Eleven chapters of which we can't do justice. But this call to endurance, this call to march forward, to run this race, this athletic metaphor used here and elsewhere, all sits on the backdrop in the book of Hebrews to an audience of Jewish people that are tempted to go back to Judaism that are tempted to go back to the law. You can imagine there's some simplicity to looking back at these things that I can do that I thought could please God, but they're not able to do that. But the chief temptation is that of this social pressure that they're going to get from those whom they love, from family and those around them in their culture. And so over and over and over again... The writer of Hebrews says, hold fast, endure. You follow me here just looking at a couple of places here in Hebrews chapter 2. And yes, he is shaping the supremacy of Christ. That Christ is greater than angels, greater than Moses who represents the law. He's greater than Joshua. He's greater than the whole sacrificial system. But it's all in this movement towards believe this is true... Lest you drift away. And he says that in chapter 2. He says, for this reason we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. So kind of that idea of focus. Pay closer attention lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every trespass and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That salvation first spoken by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard, and God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. So very early, chapter 2, you're looking and saying, why is he writing this? He wants to encourage them not to neglect, not to say, I've heard the gospel and to move on, or worse, to move back. Chapter three goes on that says that now, verse five and six, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. So this is the moment in chapter three where Christ is greater than Moses. He says, "Whose house we are?" That is, we are the house, the household of God, as Paul says in. Timothy, if we hold fast our confidence, the boast of our hope. And then a little later in verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Just, you know, we could keep going. We're just going to do a couple more. Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest. So he's talking to a Jewish audience, this idea of rest, of Sabbath, the seventh day of rest in the promised land. Any one of you may seem to have fallen short of it. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Lest anyone fail, fall into the same example of disobedience, i.e. the example of the disobedience of that first older generation that didn't enter the promised land in Exodus. Therefore, verse 14, he goes on, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us take hold of our confession Chapter 10, do this one and one more, just to say, therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, and so by this point he's built this argument out, the new way through Christ, a new way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Same idea, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who has promised is faithful. So he's not just simply here to scare. He's not simply here to make someone wonder what if, but to to move them towards assurance that they can hope without wavering to endure And then a little later in that chapter, he says, For you also showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted with joy the seizure of your possessions. Because this is the issue. This is the social pressure. People are being thrown in prison for what they believe. People are losing their property for what they believe. Why are they doing this? We've seen the persecution in those first few chapters of Revelation. Why? Why? Because there's a future, they say, a hope that, second part of 34 there, knowing that you have your, for yourselves a better and lasting possession. Therefore, do not throw away that confidence of yours, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. And so when you come to chapter 12, it's the same language of Endurance. And the example is going to be that Christ endured. Let us run first. And uh, verse 1 here of chapter 12 is the endurance run it in a way similar to what we see in chapter 11. And so we're going to see here a couple different ways to help us focus on Christ. To fix our eyes on him. And in verse 1 it's going to look backwards at chapter 11. And backwards at God's people throughout history, throughout biblical history. And so the first way we're going to see it here is to fix our eyes on Jesus by looking backward. Now the way I think of this is as you are going on a trip and you're driving on the interstate, you are going to take a look back into the rearview mirror every once in a while. It's not the most important thing. And so if somehow you've heard a sermon on this where chapter 11 becomes all about how great the saints Were How great Abraham was. How great Moses was. You need to read a little bit more of Genesis. A little more of Exodus. In fact, Moses doesn't even enter into the promised land. It's not that these men and women, Rahab, as mentioned here. Not that they are perfect, but they do things. They have actions that are motivated by faith. Because they believe, they trust the promises of God. And so, verse 1 here says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. He's referring to this cloud of witnesses in chapter 11. Surrounding us, lay aside every weight and the sin which so entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so the first thing he does is he looks backwards. He looks backwards here. And you go to chapter 11, verse 1. And he does so by looking back at what he has said about this very nature of belief or faith. And faith is faith in something. So it's not just simply a faith in kind of generic the wind, but this is a trust and faith in Christ. That's the whole argument of the book up to this point. And so what is faith? Faith in Christ specifically. It is now faith, he says, the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Why would he define faith before he lists all of these individuals? Because he's saying they didn't act out of this questionable wonder of a lack of commitment. But rather, there was a true faith. And faith is a gift that comes from the Lord. But yes, it is true that by faith it is they, 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 they acted. They believed Verse 6 even says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him that is Christ. For he who draws near to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So it's no shocking thing You're, you're in a church and you're looking at the scriptures, and faith in God is a prerequisite. But even more than that, he's saying it's not just a faith in him and believe that he is, that he exists. But you believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, that he is one who rewards and one who judges. And the one that is presented forward is the pinnacle, which is his son. Do you believe it's true about him and what he has done? Do you believe this, what we're celebrating, to be true? And by that, do you believe that it really happened? But not only that it happened, but that he will be faithful to his promises to redeem us to resurrect us. Because without that kind of faith, he's saying it's impossible to please him. He goes on to describe the faith of Abraham. Imagine the audience here. This would be between Abraham and Moses. These are the big guys. Abraham obeyed, verse 8, by going out to the place which he was to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. It's this whole concept that he's going to build on that we miss a little bit because we live in a different culture. But what Abraham has done is he has forsaken what he's known, and we have that concept, you you have things you know and things you're comfortable with, and he forsook that and went and did something, quote-unquote, uncomfortable, yes. But more than that, over and over again, it's this idea of their culture being one of honor and one of shame, And we have some similarities we'll talk about today, but this would be heavily emphasized with the way it was instructed because it's going to be the the social values. And that Abraham would leave his family to go to an inheritance, that he would go out not knowing, verse 8, where he was going is a demonstration that he trusts, that he has faith of, of things hoped for, conviction of things not yet seen. Just an example of a demonstration of how do you know he was a man of faith? Because look at the way that he lived. He trusted the promises of God by trusting in what God would do in the future. It goes on there. talks about many of the things Abraham did. But even verse 20 I find interesting. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau even regarding things to come. And if you know the story of uh, Abraham's son Isaac and he has twin boys Jacob and Esau who are very much different, very much opposites. In what way does Isaac demonstrate faith when he blesses Jacob and Esau? Well, in one way, if you know the story, God actually says that the blessing of the goes to of the the line goes to Jacob, who is second born, which would be radically counter cultural. In fact, you could say it was a shameful thing to do, but Isaac says, I'm going to trust the Lord, even though I don't understand. Why is he going to bless Jacob? Why isn't he going to bless Esau in the same way? But by faith, Isaac's going to trust the Lord. And likewise, Jacob, as he's dying, blesses his sons. There's a trust that the line will continue. He has faith and trust in what the Lord is doing, but probably my favorite example, which is picked up multiple times in Hebrews, is Hebrews eleven twenty four, the example of Moses, because you see it demonstrated so clearly here that by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter, meaning that Moses is, as the movie goes, a prince of Egypt. He has a choice. To be the prince of Egypt, to be one who has power, one who has honor. But he refused that honor. Why? Because he had faith, trusting in God's promises for God's people. Choosing, verse 25, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why? Because he had an assurance of things hoped for and a conviction of things not yet seen. The short-term choice was simple choose to be a son of Pharaoh. But the long-term choice, looking, he understood and had faith that ultimately I'd rather be honoring God than have all the pleasures of the world. And so verse 26 says it very much that way. In our context, looking at regarding the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. And he goes on and gives many more examples over and over and over again, they choose what would be socially shocking. What you would say looks like a foolish decision. But they stand as the great cloud of witnesses for you to continue to endure. Because you're going to face trials and tribulations and temptations. And look, they trusted. No matter the difficulty, no matter the challenge, they trusted God's promises And so, it's the call to the original audience, don't turn back. And a reminder for us, this Resurrection Sunday as well, to not turn back. Christ is a better way, and He is not slow to fulfill His promises, but He is exactly on His perfect timetable. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the reminder... For those of you who like to make good decisions, very often it's difficult claiming the name of Christ in the world because Paul says, consider the calling, that is, considering your calling to Christ. In verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many Noble. So that's you and I. There aren't a lot of mighty people, not a lot of noble people, not a lot of presidential candidates here this morning. But, why? Because it says, verse 27, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise that same concept, this idea of their culture, of how important the social values of being honored and being and avoiding, to be honored and to avoid shame. He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not so that they may abolish things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. So there is purpose in this. That lest you think boastfully, this is because I am so smart, this is because I am so strong, this is because I am so powerful, I am so wise. It says, no, that's not how God worked in the past, it's not how he works today. And one of those reasons is so that no one may boast before God. You have to come to the end of yourself and say, I can't solve it, I can't figure it out, and turn To him. That's who he calls, not the wise, but the weak. He demonstrates his power through weakness. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 is full of those weak individuals who God demonstrates his power in the most unlikely way. The history of the Old Testament, the history of the Jewish nation is not one of strength in numbers or Power, ...but one of strength in who they served in their God and how He delivers them over and over and over and over again. The scripture goes at length to continue to redefine these understandings, these values of honor and of shame... But he goes on in chapter 12, our text this morning, the second part. And we're going to see that he uses this whole cloud of witness as a means in which to motivate you and I. And the first thing that wants to motivate us to is to motivate us to trust. Trust to lay aside every weight it says and the sin which so entangles us motivation is you look around at who's come before and fill in your blank with those who you have walked alongside with that have encouraged you in the faith. And you see what they have done and you are encouraged to say, you know what, look at what they have done. Let me lay aside every weight and sin which entangles us. Lightly informed by the third part of this with the let us run. Why use this imagery of lay aside weights? Well, because you wouldn't run a race with a weight. Unless you're a crazy CrossFitter and that doesn't count. Most people are not going to put weight if they want to win the race. It says, cast it off. Focus on what is most important. And that's going to involve verse 2 and fixing your eyes on Christ. Cast off those things that are distractions. This is the Sermon on the Mount. If your eye causes you to sin, Jesus says... Fuck it out. If your hand causes you sin to cut it off, do what it takes to lay it aside. Particularly, he's talking the weight of perhaps Judaism and the law. Cast it aside, but also sin, which so easily entangles us all. That is the desire to have others give us praise, not look for the praise of God and God alone. And this is where he is redefining these things. Look for receive honor not from men, but honor from God. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.4 says that no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Another example from which we to this day still understand that a soldier doesn't get entangled in the same way as someone who is an average citizen. and He's saying in the same way, in this case in Timothy, Paul talking to Timothy, be careful. Live your life in a way where you're not being entangled so easily by the world and particularly here by sin and the weight that it's going to cause you. Rather, look to say this isn't to be a short sprint but motivate you to endure. Why? Because it's a long race. It is a marathon. Let us run. With endurance, the race, it says, that is set before us. Remain, hold fast in midst of all of the pressures that are coming. We live in a world where, for the most part, there's been a lot written on this. We don't have a kind of Middle Eastern culture of honor shame. And there's actually a lot of argument in philosophy that we should move back there and how effective honor and shame can be for social control. And historically that's been true in most nations. And I think you see it with social media, right? You do certain things and you will be shamed into recanting or be cancelled or be ruined. And so some argue we're moving closer to it maybe, moving backwards to it. But there is a way in which I say Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, that we understand this very much within our culture as well, that there are things that aren't going to make it easy to endure. So look in the rearview mirror when necessary and be reminded others have come before and be encouraged, be motivated to lay the things that need to be laid aside. But more important than looking backwards, the text And all of Hebrews is more focused on looking forward by fixing our eyes on Christ. Verse 2, and our second point, to not only fix our eyes on Jesus by looking backward, but to fix our eyes by looking forward. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary fainting in heart so don't just look backwards but look forwards I find this interesting from the writer of Hebrews because typically when you're thinking about what Christ has done think of this morning think of Good Friday we think you look backward look at what Christ has done But this kind of puts it in the present context that you need to fix your eyes on Jesus now. Not looking back, but looking forward, keeping him in sight, the author, the perfecter of faith. The uh, the writer of Hebrews wants us to see this as a present reality. A present reality. I think too often you learn things about who Christ is. You learn things about who Christ is from the scriptures. But then they get put in the rearview mirror and they don't become very impactful for what you focus on and what you prioritize and how you live your life. And this is the opposite. To endure in this hostile culture then and to endure in a hostile culture today, you best fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is the author. That is, he is the one in whom not only is the just and the justifier, but he is... The way, the truth and the life, the way of salvation. He is both the, the author, the reason, and he is the perfecter. You can look at this a little bit. I think almost like a Good Friday Easter. The way in which he has authored it. Yes, there is some level in which it is control. But he is the story, right? His life, his death. But also the perfecter. faith, and that He is the fulfillment of all hopes and dreams and all promises of God. As Paul says, all the Old Testament promises find their yes and their amen in Him. He becomes an example here as one who, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. He's saying, don't just look backward, but look forward at what Christ has done, the author and perfecter of your faith, who, for the joy set before Him, that is, the idea that suffering precedes glory, and that's seen throughout the Gospels. The cross is going to come before the resurrection, the cross before being sit- seated at the right hand of God. The joy set for him, he endured it, says the cross. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he endured the cross, how much more can we endure whatever trials and tribulations if he endured the cross? Namely, any frames it not in... And this is interesting. He doesn't frame it in the concept of physical. Which is how I'm sure we think... And we think of Good Friday. His physical sufferings. The beatings. The crucifixion. The focus here is one... That this audience needs to hear... Of despising the shame. The pressure of the culture on them to be outcast, to be seen as weak. And Jesus, for a future joy, being seated at the right hand of the Father, endured the cross, and he despised the shame. He discounts the shame. Not just being brave, is this, this idea, what does it mean to despise the shame? This, um, this idea of dismissing or suffering or... Proving, but he provides a perfect example of endurance. And he's taking those values and reorienting that this idea of public accord of opinion. That Jesus took what was the most disgraceful seat in the community, the cross. And he says... Yes, to everyone else, that looks disgraceful, shameful. But in God's courtroom, in God's opinion, Jesus is worthy of highest honor. Which is why the second half of two, that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's think for a moment as you think about that thought of despising the shame As I said, there aren't a lot of things in our culture. We kind of live in a culture that is shameless, is usually the concept that's thrown around with American culture. But there are some things that move us into this idea where it's not just embarrassing or humiliating, but something that is more deep-rooted. The idea is of... I was thinking of a few off the top of my head. I remember a time in my place where the worst, most shameful thing would be to go back and ask mom and dad for money. Not just humiliating and embarrassing, but like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I, I will go without eating before I go down that low and go back to mom and dad. Maybe for some parents, you think, well, one thing worse than that would be someday having to turn around and ask your kids for help. And again, it's that pushing it to say this is something that is culturally... Not just humiliating, not just embarrassing, but this is this idea of shame. Something you don't, you can't laugh at. Failure is often put in this category. It would be shameful to fail at a career or fail at a relationship as a parent. Failing with kids. There's no way you can start to make light of those things because they're so deeply ingrained in the things we desire but worse than all of those things that are kind of socially you go yeah that's a bad thing because sometimes socially acceptable things can be wicked things there's the way in which the scriptures reorient it to say what matters most is God's opinion and failing at honoring God who is worthy above all is the worst sin and really the chief sin of all and that's the good news of what Christ has done and what he has endured. He's flipped it on its head so that now when you face all of the social pressures and for them whether it was shame from family, shame from fellow neighbors, the loss of work as is mentioned in Hebrews, loss of possession, how can you continue? Why not just go back? Be accepted Why endure when Christianity will bring you scorn and bring you shame? It's because they recognize what Christ has done for them and that he nailed that shame, whatever it is, for them. of course, the highest shame being dishonoring God to the cross. If you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, the issue of shame pops up very, very early. It is they were in the garden and they were naked and they were not. Ashamed doesn't last long because chapter 3, sin enters the world and so does this idea that we are ashamed or we missed the mark. Something very internal about us is wrong. But Jesus endures the cross. Why? So that he might bring salvation from that forgiveness for those things. the application then for living verse 3 and 4 that you consider him that is Christ who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so saying you're facing hostility no consider the one who faced hostility even to the point of death on a cross so that you will not grow weary fainting in heart this is to be encouraging to be motivating to not lose heart and be discouraged and to make it pretty obvious and to point it out and lay it flat in verse 4 you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin I go on to keep building this argument that even in the sufferings it's part of the way God matures and loves us which is verses 5 through really the rest of the chapter but it's a reminder here that Christ is not just an example. He is our Savior, but He also serves as this chief example of flipping it on its head. What matters most? Is it God's opinion or is it man's opinion? The opinion of the world. Consider what Christ has done. Consider who He is. And the way you live should be Living in a way that is fixed on who he is and what he has done. Same idea the picture of driving down the the road of life. And yes, there's some importance of looking back, but it really matters if you're going to be safe. You're not going to stare down at the pedals, you're not going to stare at the person next to you. Hopefully, you're not going to get distracted at all. But the point is, you fix your eyes on Jesus, you look forward focusing on Him and what He has done, that you orient your life around that so you can make decisions then that even if those around you think are foolish or dishonoring, that you say, but what matters most is what God thinks. And I would rather honor Him and bring shame than to dishonor Him even if others will look and say, well, look at how wise He is is we're to focus on what's ahead fixing our eyes on Christ let's pray father we thank you for the time that you've given that we can look to this passage and be reminded of your call for your people to be focused on what Christ has done Not simply as a past reality, but as a present reality. That yes, we can look back and be encouraged by those throughout Scripture who by faith were making decisions that were unpopular, shameful by the count and the court of opinion in their day. But they counted it most important, what you thought of their life, of their actions. So encourage us this morning as we look to those truths and we desire to refocus our own lives, are we doing the things that honor you as we live our lives? Not only today, not only as we think of Resurrection Sunday, but as we live out the rest of our lives in a way that ultimately brings honor to you because we want to hear those words, good done, good and faithful servant. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.